Welcome to Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast. And speaking of music, that song that played me in is titled Shepherd Head. It is from the album Shepherd Head. And it is by Young Jesus. And it was released September 16th, 2022. And my guest today is John Rossiter, who is Young Jesus. And this is a really great conversation. If you haven't Listen to the podcast before. I interview musicians of all kinds, mostly in the indie realm. Some legendary, some very well established, some brand spanking new. And uh, I take a very improvisational approach to my conversations. I do a bunch of research. I go with the first thing that happens within our conversation and follow that. And of course, I'm armed, well armed with a lot of information that I can throw in and keep the conversation going. And hopefully, just hopefully, we discover new territory that I haven't seen in interviews and whatnot and keep it fresh and real. I believe I did that with my guest today, John Rossiter. God damn it. Uh, we both come from the northwest suburbs of Chicago, so we definitely have a similar vocabulary a background that we share that I think really helped us talk and explore ideas in our lives um, with with a bit more ease. It's a, First of all, uh, you could go to the show notes and find all things Young Jesus. Please uh, buy music. Don't just, don't just stream. I stream on Tidal. They pay the best. But I also tend to buy on Bandcamp especially on Bandcamp Fridays, whenever I can give a musician the most money, I choose to do so because it is important to support music. The The venues, Live Nation, Ticketmaster, are making it fucking harder and harder for musicians to make a living to these days. I keep reading things about how venues, especially Live Nation, take 25%, if not more sometimes, of the merch which is just fucking insane to me. <laughs> it's absolutely insane to me. I, I am not crazy, but there used to be a day when the band got a cut of the bar because the band is the people who brought the people into the bar to the venue who bought the drinks. So they would get their fee for playing and a cut of the bar if it hit a certain number. It's just insane where we've gone with screwing over musicians over income. It's just absolutely insane to me. Musicians who should be making a living, who are established, making a li- should be making a living. But many of them who I know have side hustles, and it's just insane to me. Um, speaking of musicians not making money, I recently produced an album that all the profits went to charity. It is called The Eleventh Hour, Songs for Climate Justice. I did it with Sub Pop and uh, also produced it along with filmmaker Adam McKay, who did don't look up as well as uh, you know Talladega Nights and other movies, but he's a two or three time nominated Oscar. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We did this album. All the proceeds go to the Climate Emergency Fund. There's a long. There's 20 artists on it: uh, Fake Fruit, Death Valley Girls, Moby, Cloud Nothings, Mud Honey, uh, Frankie Cosmos, um, Gorilla Toss, a bunch of others. Forgive me if I left anybody out. Kevin Devine. Marinero. Um, it's a really great album. All proceeds. There's a link to that in the show notes. You could buy that as well and support the Climate Emergency Fund who support people who are doing tough work out in the streets, activism, and trying to bring awareness of the climate crisis that, frankly, 
it's a crisis, and we're in big fucking trouble if we don't do something fast. Um, you could find all links to that as well. You could go to thematwire.com, uh, where you could become a Patreon subscriber for five dollars a month. And a lot of my conversations have a part two. John Rossiter and I talked for an additional twenty to thirty minutes. That lives on my my Patreon, uh, so you could go and enjoy. The, and continue the conversation. 98% of my conversations have a part two. And they're all in the old uh, Patreon. And uh, speaking of websites, if you need a website, you can go to kellyrdewire.com. That's my partner. That's the person I made two babies with. And you could become, uh, you could get a website from her. She does a lot of big fucking websites. She does like ologies. She does the exactly right company which is a website company that produces a ton of big podcasts anyway she also does actors and musicians and all kinds of websites so if you need one go there it's in the show notes all things that you need to know are in the show notes and i think that's it i'm going to move on and i'm going to get to my conversation with the great and splendid this is a really good conversation i really felt honored to talk with john rossiter of young jesus you and I are both from the suburbs of Chicago. I'm curious to which suburb you are from. I grew up in Glencoe. Glencoe. Len Casper lives in Glencoe. Really? He did. I th- he probably still does. Why wouldn't he? Unless he, you know. Uh, How about you? Uh, don't get jealous, my friend. Streamwood. Streamwood. <laughs> oh, incredible. As I used to say, the town that you heard about when somebody killed their wife or won the lottery, which is... Oh. The wife killing was a little bit more... <laughs> yeah, that one's tough. So that was a little bit more common than the lottery. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I was at, um, what do you call it, Sam Ash, that music store, getting some cables for tour. And I was talking to the guy at the front desk. And somehow, oh, he asked about my area code on my phone. And he was like, oh, you must be from Cary County, Illinois. And I was like, no, I'm not. But, um, <laughs> and uh, he was like, oh, I am. I was like, oh, what town? <coughs> said Oregon, Illinois. And I was like, Oh, crazy. My family is buried there. (laughs) (laughs) You should should have followed that with don't tell anyone. Yeah. Don't exactly. Yeah. (laughs) I've never heard of Oregon, Illinois. Yeah. It's a pretty little place. It's kind of a middle of Illinois. And, um, there's a river that runs through there and it's mostly farming rural is that town. sort of where the family's from originally that's like you know like a hundred years ago that's where um some of my ancestors were and then the other side of my family was in um michigan as farmers so yeah and then they came to chicago how was glencoe to grow up in as especially for because i know this is where i feel like there was a lot of similarities when i read about your life and world and maybe that's just uh fucking the splendidness of illinois (laughs) (laughs) maybe everybody feels like an outsider in illinois 
I think um, anyone that did you end up leaving Illinois? Uh, yeah, I'm in Los Angeles like you. Yeah, me too. I think people that leave probably leave for a reason, and it's probably because they feel like outsiders. Yeah. Uh, and because it is, at least for me, it was quite hard to leave Illinois. Um, there was like just some sort of deep psychic and existential gravity keeping me um, locked into some patterns there. So at least the people I meet out here who are from Illinois tended to not fit in with their families, with their communities. But I mean, I grew up with some folks that, that are totally, totally cool staying there for forever. And I don't knock them for that. We're just different. Uh, I know some guys who haven't left Streamwood and I'm just like, like, you know, the fucking sandals resort doesn't count as travel. My friend. (laughs) Yeah. But to some people it's absolutely incredible. So, you know, I'm in the stage of my life where I just got to accept that that's, that's true. I I just, I felt like growing up it, I would just, I couldn't get up. Did you escape to Chicago? Cause that was my first escape. Yeah, first escape was, well, I went to school in Ohio for a year, took acid, dropped <laughs> out. Then I ended up moving to Chicago where I was working at Borders and going to night school, living in like Rogers Parkish around um, Loyola, and then ended up living in Ukrainian Village, and then I moved to L.A., uh, let's go back to the acid because I want to, cause it seems like you went to college acid taught you something. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is I went to college and then I was home for the summer and I took acid with my, a couple, um, musician friends from high school. Um, I was in a band called cutthroat clubhouse with my friend, Sean, nice strand in high school. And, um, yeah, we took acid and, uh, he was in a band and he asked me to join it. And I told them I really wanted to, it was like a dream of mine. And so that was the plan. I just left school to join their band, which was young Jesus, uh, about 14 years ago now. And they had started it. My friends, Sean Nystrand and Cody Kellogg. And I joined as like, we were three guitarists, three acoustic guitars. Um, and yeah, it just went from there. Were you studying music or something completely removed? Just studying English. I can't read music. I can't. I don't really know many chord names. Um, it's all by ear. When did you start figuring out how to do that? I, I've been playing music since I was four or five. I um, sang in the church choir and uh, played violin for about seven years. And you learned that yourself as well? That one I learned this thing called Suzuki method. Where you you do it on a motorcycle, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm sure that joke's been made a thousand times. (laughs) Actually, that joke has never been made to me, so I love that. Oh, okay. I tried not to be a hack. Yeah, you're not a hack. Um, And that's by ear training. So you listen to your teacher play and you sight read and try to play according to what they played. And it's really a cool way to learn. Um, 
I happen to have the same violin teacher as my now fiance that we didn't know. We, we both took violin lessons from this Russian woman named Laura Zhejin, very strict, intense teacher. Um, but so I did that for a while and then I just couldn't fucking practice. Like the, the rigor of it was absurd. My mom would try to bribe me with like pizza hut every week. <laughs> I could do like seven hours of practice a week. I would get pizza hut and even that wouldn't do it for me. Um, so I quit and my mom taught me how to play an incubus song on guitar. Cause she, she plays like folk, Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and, um, taught me that tune. And from there, I just started learning guitar and it was all by, all by ear. So the violin kind of is the base of like, maybe where it all sprung from. Totally. And all that, I mean, so helpful, all that hand strength and muscle memory and, um, it's so formal violin training that I think it gave me a good approach for guitar. Just as a side note, did you know your girlfriend at the time or was this a, did you someone you met later? We met at the bookstore I was working at in LA and we didn't find out till later that we grew up about like a 10 minute walk from each other. Isn't that wild? Really wild. Really, really wild. Sometimes the world and life is a weird motherfucker. <laughs> I think it, I think it does like guide you in these certain ways where you keep interacting with people you think are going to drift apart or you don't know are there and there's some kind of something that brings these people for some whatever it is one needs to learn or um yeah, I really believe that. I'm having that happen a lot um, even yeah. today. I, I I mean, I think of like certain people that I've met along my, and I look and I go, if I don't meet that one person, my life does not go in this direction. The direction so, that saved my fucking life. <laughs> like, exactly. It's crazy. But is that to you, is that, I, I don't know, like is that privilege thinking? Because, you know, things like the secret and whatnot, can't really get on board with that <laughs> but definitely not but i'm like but there's something at play or am i over reading it i think it's really important to pay attention to why and when people show up in your life it doesn't necessarily mean that i don't think anyone's necessarily manifesting that or um but i think for anyone, these are in, it's really interesting food for thought to dig beyond just that this person is here and that's it and more. What could this mean almost on like a mythic level to think of your life as participating in some sort of greater strange myth I, I kind of like? You know, like I'm, I'm on tour right now with um, opening for this band, Petey, and Pete was the first drummer of Young Jesus. And we spent many years apart, but there's a reason why our lives keep intertwining and why we ended up in L.A. together and making music and um, finding each other. And I think that's really interesting. I don't know what that is because I ran away from high school um, and, and that, that scene in Glencoe. And here it is, like, I'm on tour with a lot of high school friends now. We're all um, 
never, I never thought that would happen, but I think in part it's happening because we have a lot of thinking and healing to do around that experience of high school and growing up where we did. So was I related. It's funny. Cause you say like in your high school, there was a lot of, uh, you know, get follow jobs at be our man jobs, banker and et cetera. And which in my town, it was be a mechanic, (laughs) (laughs) but it was like to step towards the arts was, you know, it, it, it came with great judgment and sometimes cruel judgment because theater people assumed certain things about my sexuality. (laughs) Of course. No, hundred percent. And, and also like in Illinois, at least where I was living, the homophobia is so intense too. just like to be different in any way. Um, that was always, um, you couldn't lean into your sensitivity because then all your friends would tear you apart. Um, and that was really difficult. And on another level, there were no models for artistic people because in the town where I was with bankers and lawyers, you don't live in that town. If you're an artist, unless like you just can't, um, the only people that were, were like the, the, the like TV anchors, some of the like channel nine TV anchors lived around those towns. So to look for guidance for a life that is different and, and that you need to, um, like, especially now you just have to cobble together whatever you can do. And it's been nice to be on tour with all these people. Cause we're just talking to each other being like, man, I thought my fucking life would make sense by now. Or like I'd have, cause everyone I knew, all the men that I saw growing up just went to work every single day and like went to the same job for 20 to 30 years and then moved on to another job or whatever. Um, but we're all finding a new job every six months cause we have to go on tour or whatever. And that feels really insecure and, and can be quite difficult, but it's helpful to have these friends right now where we're all going through a similar thing that it's to sort of be like, it's okay to be sort of precarious in this way. Like we're, because we're so committed to the art we want to make and, and the music and, it's okay that you're a gardener for a year and then you're a bookseller and then you're a barista and then, you know, that uh, your life doesn't have to just be this ordered model that we all observe growing up. It's a, it's a hard, the message of being secure, which is total bullshit is such a persistent and predominant one your whole life. And it's like, it does, it's not real. It's not a real concept because for multiple reasons, you could take a stray bullet. Your company could go up in flames. You, it's like, it could be, it's, I, I, and I wonder like the guy who's the banker for 30 years, he's probably going, what the fuck have I done? I'm chained to a desk. Exactly. Or, or feeling the same level of insecurity. Like how do I hold on to this job? Because now all of a sudden I've created this life that is so dependent on me keeping this job. Like if this goes away, then 
what am I going to do? Because well, you have all these debts and all these payments and you, you have to somehow match the life of the guy next to you. And the really insidious thing about a place like Glencoe or Wilmette or Kenilworth is that there's very little community where people are sharing the struggles. You, you, the biggest thing is to pretend you don't have any struggles and that your family unit is self-contained and perfect and God forbid nobody is queer or struggling with mental illness or sickness or financial insecurity. But I guarantee that damn near every family there is going to become something like that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I would rather be broke and shuffling job to job trying to figure things out than, than that. Yeah. That yeah. just sounds like pure suffering. Yeah, I think it, there's a lot of pain there, that's for sure. But hey, Valium and, and vodka help those people. Yeah, they really do. They, you know, they either make you, yeah, they really do. Uh, and also there was a predominant, like a lot of Christianity in your youth, which is interesting. In my family. Yeah. Was it imposed upon you? Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was that's just what life was, you know, Um I, I also the town I grew up in was mostly like predominantly Jewish. So most of my friends were Jewish and I got exposed to a lot of Jewish spiritual traditions and Shabbats and seders and bar and bat mitzvahs, which was really nice. I really appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I went to church every Sunday and my family was really active in the church and I went to Sunday school and, say grace and talk about Jesus and God. And, um, it's just, I, I, and it, it really influenced the structure of how I think about the world, whether I like it or not. Um, I do really think about things in terms of, um, some of those stories in terms of, you know, grace and redemption and, um, major suffering in order to come out the other side with something and, um, which is both good and bad. You know, it's nice to have a story to make sense of, of pain and suffering, but it's not the best to glorify it, which is where I tend, I can land there sometimes, you know, sort of like you have to, this has to be miserable for it to be worthwhile. Um, so I'm trying to trying to temper that a little bit and have a little bit of balance. But um, for a long time, I was really I really rebelled against that. But um, I do I do get a lot of um, help from thinking about things in spiritual terms, whether that's Christian or Buddhist or um, whatever spiritual traditions are around. Um, but Christianity is how I interpret pretty much all of those. Um, just cause that's my default from growing up. Um, <clears throat> yeah. yeah, we went, I was, I got involved in a church in like my, like around 14 or 15. Yeah. And it's hard to kind of deprogram like that thinking. And plus, you know, growing up from in a Catholic health household, there's just, even that my family wasn't very, Catholic and we didn't go to church, that shit is in there deep. And it's sometimes 
like shame, guilt. And it's like, I didn't fucking do anything. <laughs> it's like, yeah. At least let me have a party and then feel some shame and guilt. Yeah. No, I, shame and guilt is like, the, they're like the biggest bugaboos in my life. Those are the things I struggle with the most. And they really, um, I write about it a lot. And I have an album that I just finished that is, that's basically the whole um, focus of it is, is working through those, those feelings. Cause damn, they really hold you back. Um, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I hate that, that that is in, in me and I still, still have to fight it. It's crazy. And yeah. It's life should just be very simple of about existing and going from moment to moment. But somebody packed so many voices in all of our heads that it's I'm amazed when I find somebody who is incredibly present and like just flows through life. I'm like, how what trick did you learn? Yeah, I kind of feel like they're lying. but <laughs> <laughs> Often, yeah. I, yeah. I I had a friend, we were roommates for a while. He was pretty zen and he did seem like just like like one of those dudes who's like he'd be broken and he would literally find a X $100 sweater in a Marshall Fields bag with a receipt or something. Like just crazy shit like that all the time. Yeah. There really is uh and I don't know if this is real, but I feel like there is I, I've had experiences like that in my life and I've seen other people where if you can just let go into like a kind of flow existence, shit does kind of just pop up. Um, things do fall into place a little bit. Um, but yeah, easier said than done. Yeah. I've had periods. I had a period where every time I needed something, it did appear. I needed a computer screen and I found one outside my apartment. I needed a suitcase. <laughs> it's like, it was like these weird things. And then they would just like suddenly be like on a street. And maybe that's a coincidence, but like a computer monitor is a pretty specific and it worked and it was big and it was fancy. And I was just like, how does this happen? Yeah. I, I, there's this, um, there's this part in the Harry Potter series where Harry Potter drinks this potion called Felix Felicis, which is like a luck potion. And he's supposed to obtain something from some teacher. He drinks the potion and his friends are like, okay, go talk to the fucking teacher. And he's like, no, I actually just want to go check out the plants and I'm going to go on a walk over here. And through just like, that's what luck actually turned out to be. It wasn't like, forcing yourself to find this thing it was taking the circuitous route that you wanted to take would actually lead you to the thing you need um so he ended up getting the thing he needed without seeking out um seeking it out specifically and i think about that a lot like i um i have a show tomorrow and the guy i have been playing with can't make it because of a family emergency and so and I found out about this like a week ago and I was like, okay, I'm just going to see what happens. And I got a call from a, a neighbor and I went to his house cause I had forgotten to return his drum machine and brought his drum machine. We started talking and he, I was like, Oh yeah, I need, I need someone to play with on Thursday. I'm trying to figure it out. And he ended up being the person that I needed to play with. And so he'll, he's going to sit in on the set 
with me and another drummer. And it's just weird how it just kind of the problem solved itself rather than if I had sort of gone through my phone book or my emails and been like, who the fuck am I going to play with? Yeah. It was just like, Oh, I went for a walk and ended up finding the person that I needed to play with. Yeah. I've that's, I used to spiral and just, it would go worst case scenario all the time. And that's an, that is definitely uh, something, a reaction to like growing up in a violent childhood where you're always calculating, but it's like you carry that and then it gets, (coughs) excuse me, gets in your way. And you can't function. And somehow I've learned to take that approach where I'm just like, all right, okay, it'll work out. I'm not going to end up in the street, so what's it fucking matter? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Uh, I mean, I do have that. I still do have that, like, I got to let myself have a day or two of being, like, cycling through worst-case scenarios. And I've just accepted that, like, that is part of the process for me of, of allowing myself to then eventually get into a good state. But I used to only be in that. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, when you got to Chicago, did that feel like escape enough or did you find those patterns or thinking uh, still exist? It was, I was, I was even escaping when I was in Glencoe, but that was, and Chicago was that times 10 because it was like, in Glencoe, I was living at my parents' house for a bit when I had left school and just like drinking a lot and doing drugs. And when I went to Chicago, I could do it whenever I wanted. (laughs) And um, I didn't even have to hide it. Um, So that was like ultimate escape. And I actually was chatting with a podcast from that's based in Chicago last week. And they were asking me like, what's the, what are the positive things about Chicago and the music scene? And it is a positive. I think that there is, there is a, there is a community there. If you can, if you can like stick it where people and musicians are like all hanging out at the same bars and, um, going to similar shows and that you don't quite get in LA and people are talking about music and sharing music. And that is really nice. It's just not for me. I end up just taking it way too far and I don't have that, you know, like moderation. And I also kind of just become an asshole when I'm really drunk. So, um, I had the, I had to, I had to leave for sure to get out of, um, cause I didn't have the capability at that point to say no. So, um, I, I might not have loved how it all felt and maybe some of my friends did really love it and were able to just party and feel good and that's it. But I was doing it to fit in and to escape something. And I didn't know what that was when I was in Chicago. Do you know what it is now? Yeah. Um, I was trying to escape the, the work of accepting myself, I would say, and looking in and accepting that I've felt pain and I've, I've inflicted pain and I've, and that I feel sad and angry and all these things. Like I just didn't allow myself to feel anything. Um, or to admit that 
that could be anything other than fine. I'm fine. I'm good. Um, but when I moved here, I started to realize that like, it's weird to, you know, cry like two times in 15 years. And it's strange to be like, I thought passive aggressiveness meant you weren't angry. Um, and when I moved here, I could start feeling that coming out into actual, like, um, like actual visible anger in myself, which I never thought I would see. And that's been really powerful to just be able to see that happen and, and to get past the shame and guilt of like, I shouldn't feel sad. I shouldn't feel angry. Um, and just allow those emotions and try to redirect them into some positive uses. Um, so yeah, that's, I would say I was running away from those feelings, my own feelings. Did you quit drinking? I am like pretty good about having a drink these days. So I have like one or two drinks a month and that's been doable. I think I made myself so sick with binge drinking that there was, there's a real difference between a drink and 10 drinks. <laughs> I laugh because I know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. I can feel, I can physically feel it when I'm touching the edge and I have such a physical reaction to touching that edge after, if I have two drinks, I'm like, it is so disgusting to me um, that I haven't pushed past that. Um, the th the harder thing for me would be if I had a cigarette, if I had a cigarette, then I wouldn't be able to stop myself. I think that's where I put all that um, addiction energy, but I haven't had a cigarette in four years. So that's good. I had one, like I was shooting something and I did it as a bit, and I inhaled and it was like, it was enough time where I was like, oh, this is lost all, like it just felt the way, like you could just feel it like enter my cells. And I was like, oh my God, this is fucking awful. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. Good. Do, how do you feel when you smell it? Like in the air? Um, it depends on the cigarette. If I smell Marlboro lights, which was my first cigarette when I was like 18, to 27 i think wow that is so disgusting yeah those what are a, just i can't believe i ever smoked those um if i smell an american spirit which was my cigarette from like 28 to 30 i'm like that smells pretty nice but yeah yeah do you remember i used to go into the old town what was this fucking tobacco shop on wells in old town I think it was just called mm -hmm. Old Town Tobacco Shop or something. But yeah. there was like, there was a definite smell in that place that was kind of romantic. And you felt like, well, I'm going to read a leather bound book and chew on a pipe. <laughs> oh, the best. But that is like, such, but I still wouldn't do it. I just like, I don't want to smell like that. Yeah. I, I don't want to, the appeal to me of all that stuff was that I wanted I think I really wanted my pain to be visible to people. I wanted people to think that I was tortured and suffering without being like, 
having to show any emotional side of that. And I don't have that same need. So like I smoked, you know, like a pack, pack and a half a day. And that to me was so that people would be like, Whoa, he like is fucking anxious or, you know, uh, like he really needs to smoke. Um, and I don't feel like I want, that's not the part of my self that I need people to know about, you know, like I feel comfortable. I have people that I can share my pain with and I have myself to share it with. So I don't necessarily need it to be on the outside so much. Getting rid of that need for people to see that side of you. Do you feel like having lost that need has improved, helped open up your creativity? Definitely. Yeah. Um, I think it's allowed me to, to think more actively about putting some of that in my music. Um, I think I always have put a lot of um, intensity, um, whether that's anger or sadness or love, or there, there's just a lot of emotion in, in young Jesus. But um, I think lately I've been able to be more honest with myself and be a bit more straightforward lyrically, which is really exciting. I used to want to dance around topics and I would want, you know, the past iterations of young Jesus were really jammy and the, the emotional gems would sometimes be buried deep in a song that's like seven or eight minutes long and really hard to get to. Um, and now I feel quite comfortable saying within the first two lines what I want to say and then teasing that out over a song, which is really exciting. I, know, I wouldn't say it, I'm more creative, um, but I'm creative in a different way. Was that a, a process of trial and error to get to that lyrically? Yeah, still is. Like, um, I want everything to come as a, again, back to... Um, Christianity. I want every um, creative moment to be like a divine um, revelation. I want to. I want to have the sit down at the guitar and you write a whole song in thirty minutes, and it's perfect, and you can feel that you were participating in this perfect creative moment, which happens once a year, maybe. Um, and now I'm much more committed to the craft of songwriting which is sitting at a guitar for six hours or, you know, eight hours a day off and on and letting a song come, come and, and working at it and then getting to the end of that day and being like, well, that's not the song actually. It's just this, well, it turns out what I needed was just that chord progression that I found at the end of the day. And then this start of an idea and I'll tease that out tomorrow. Um, so I, trying to get away from that perfectionist um, revelation zone these days. I think I'm getting better at that. Right. What was, why, what made you choose LA over anywhere else that you could have gone or that's it. it I was going to add something else, but it wasn't needed. <laughs> cool. I, I never wanted to move to LA. We played a show in Santa Monica we were on a, a Red Bull reality show back in the day. 
it was two bands competing from Chicago to LA along Route 66, um, which is my only tattoo, which is Route 66. Oh, cool. Um, back when I was like 20 years old. And we, we played, they like Red Bull booked a show at the Viper Room and we played there. And I was like, man, I fucking hate LA. And so I was living in Chicago and I think I was just in a bit of an emotional crisis and a physical crisis. And I had a friend who has always been a good friend, but since especially being in LA, we've really been able to open up to each other and like grow our friendship and our vulnerability with each other. But he had a room opening up in Filipino town and, uh, I emailed like four bookstores and three record stores to see if they had a job. One bookstore got back to me and I got the job two days after I moved here and slept on the ground in that room for a few weeks. And then he didn't need his bed anymore. He got a new bed. So I inherited a bed and was working at skylight books for about seven years and really found a community there and a community here. It was honestly like random chance. I didn't think about it at all. My friend just said, if you want to move here, you know, I have a spot for you. And I said, okay. And it's, uh, it's one of those times where I let all my overthinking and um, control just go and just let life take me for a moment. And those have often been really good decisions in my life yeah skylight too a great yeah such a, such a special place like the, like i really yeah talk about like important recurring people like my neighbor is an old co-worker of mine jen and her husband is the guy who's gonna sit in with me tomorrow night and uh yeah they all those people really took me in i was quite lost an interesting combination of lost and probably like pretty full of myself. So <laughs> I totally fucking relate. Cause that's exactly, yeah. I made the mistake of going to New York before LA and yeah. New York was immediately just like, Oh fuck no. Uh, and yeah. kind of just threw myself into the same thing. I knew a lot of people here from Chicago as you probably knew people, but it still was like, had a small chunk of money. Yeah. Didn't have a place, didn't have a car, didn't have a license. Damn. And it was, but I don't know. There's some, LA gets such a bad rap. And I think because people, you can't, it's not a town you could visit for two days and go, I got it. It's like, it's too complex for that. Yeah. And the, the beauty of LA to me is the people. And you can't visit a place and meet the people, really. Um, and the and it's interesting because the advertisement of LA is that the people are horrible and they're also superficial and um, which is true. There are some people like that here. That's but that's like the PR campaign, and it's a it actually turns out to be a pretty small percentage of people. And I think in response to that, there's a lot of really amazing like welcoming, not super superficial people trying to resist that culture. So, and so many artists, it's like at the end of the day, it's a town of artists. 
which is fucking cool. Yeah, it's... I moved to Echo Park when I first came here, and it was kind of before Echo Park really blew up. Yeah. And it, it reminded me a lot of Wicker Park, back when Wicker Park was still a mix I, it's now i it's dizzying it's like it's well lit and i'm like what <laughs> yeah, man. i remember being at like division in ashland once and just being and like not recognizing it because it was so lit up and clean i was like what the fuck <laughs> so weird but like it was a like it's a big working class town los angeles which no one yeah. ever talks about like the working class element here which is predominant yeah, that's what most people's experience is. Again, it's the PR campaign, which is like LA is full of entitled, hyper rich people, which there is, I mean, you could say that about the US as a whole too. Um, but the, the majority of the people that make up this place are pretty engaged with, um, at least I've found like their, their struggle in their community and with themselves and, um, people are to me seem to be super politically engaged and aware in a way that I didn't see as much of in Chicago. I was probably a little bit sheltered from it coming from the suburbs, but yeah, I've been really inspired by, um, so many different people here. Yeah. And there's an element of isolation. And I say that in a good way. Like I didn't go out as much. I spent more time at home, but that allowed me in a lot of ways to become more comfortable with myself as a person, to be able to spend time alone, to not have a barrage of, because in Chicago and New York, it was like, go to, it was out. It was always sound. It was always things going in and never sitting still and processing it. And I think I just became better as in every aspect from here. Also really did drink pretty hard here too. <laughs> yeah. That was- I did for the, for the first few weeks. And then I kind of got lucky because I just realized, um, you just can't like, you have to drive so far to do anything. And I just was lazy. And I also had done like, enough of that in Chicago going from the suburbs to the city to the suburbs and drinking a ton and to, to, to get out of that cycle. It was like a nice physical break for me to get, to get out of that mindset a little bit. Yeah. Where did you, did you drink around Los Feliz where that fine bookstore is at? I would go like my roommate would take me to, to like, where did we go? Oh, what was, yeah, what was that, what's that bar by Skylight that's on Hillhurst? There's like, the, the Ye Old Rustic, and then there's that's it, that's the drawing I room. I would go to Ye Old Rustic and, and the drawing room. But Rustic was the one that I would go, and, like, I was still imbued with Chicago-ness. I would go there and watch Blackhawks games or some <laughs> shit. Yeah, it's funny. It's Chicago's hard to shake even when you're here and like i know a community of people are like chicago and la and i'm like you've been here fucking 20 like at one point i was like i've been here longer than i was in chicago like when am i gonna let it go yeah it's chicago becomes such a i don't know and i feel like people are that way in chicago like they're enamored with being a chicagoan 
I was too. I thought it was amazing. I thought, and I thought it was really important. And I, I, there's a beauty to that. Like I was just in Dallas playing a show and there is something cool about that. Like pretty much everyone thinks Texas is fucking cool in Texas and is proud of Texas. Um, I guess the interesting thing about Chicago is people don't necessarily say they are Chicagoan and are proud of it. They don't necessarily like it. It's just that they're proud of it. If that makes sense. Like they kind of like the misery of it too, or at least I did. Um, Yeah. I, I feel like, I mean, I loved living in Chicago and it definitely was where I came of age and figured a lot out. Yeah. And so I could do what I do, but I think I left and then I was like, oh, Chicago's great because I think I didn't, took me a while to find my footing here. Yeah. I wish I had had a little bit stronger of a idea of who I was in order to live there. Because I think if you can be really intentional about what you can do, it is an incredible place and there is really wonderful art and like things to see and be a part of. But I was just so ready to be taken every fucking direction with no goals, just like take me somewhere and I will go. Um, So, but at the same time, I think I needed that. So like you're saying, like it was there, it did things for me that made me who I am. So who am I to say that? I could do it better or differently. Maybe it, it was exactly what I needed. Yeah. I don't think I could go back. Like I, I will leave Los Angeles, but I don't think I could ever go back to Chicago. I don't know. I would just feel, I don't know what I would feel. It just doesn't feel right anymore. Yeah. I, 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 I have a similar, I have a similar thought. I don't know what'll happen in my life, but yeah, I do feel that. Do you think you'll stay in Los Angeles? No, I don't think so. I think I'm nearing my fiance and I are, th- are, are thinking about going back to the Midwest, but not Chicago, like going to um, like Northern Michigan is uh, the idea. Cause we're both, I've been working as like a landscaper and gardener for the past two, three years. And she's a writer and having a, a little bit of a, quieter place to write and um, a little bit more like space to garden and work on some land and be close to my, you know, within a day's drive of my parents because they're getting older is important to me. The, they, the people say that Northern Michigan is one of the better spots to be while uh, our climate completely fucking falls apart (laughs) yeah that i mean i'll be honest with you my fiance is obsessed with such things and so uh that's part that's part of her reasoning and i totally understand it i have less of a um obsession because i think it um gets in the way of my day-to-day life you know i just try to be like all right i'm someone that works with drought tolerant native plants i love doing that I think it helps. I'm not positive. Um, and I advocate for the change when, when I can, but the, the anger and the obsession is really, I've been there. I've done it for a while and it didn't, it actually didn't help. It was once I let go of that, that I actually started like 
doing the gardening that I that I think does do some make some difference in composting and all that shit. Yeah. It's uh I have kids, so I would have sleepless nights. Like literally just like what the fuck is their future like it's just it's not even about me at this point. It's just like and but I uh had to use that anxiety to fuel something, otherwise I'd be fucking naked running down the street with a fucking axe screaming <laughs> yeah. it's, I know. but that's any element of life i mean if you really start focusing on that of which is falling apart in our society these days yes. you're not gonna win yeah and i try to take the the thought of i i have no idea what what our world will become and it is a bit of human hubris to decide that we're ending the world and we know exactly what's going to happen and how we're ending it. Um, but we're a pretty small part and we have no idea what the next thousand, two thousand million years will be like. And so I try as best I can to let go of the, the like anxiety tightness of every day and just take the best steps I can day by day. But fuck. Yeah. I mean, we're not meant to be on this planet forever anyway. That's quite apparent. <laughs> like at one point or another, <clears throat> we're going to go. So it's true. It's, it's true of our individual lives. It's true of, there's a reason why the people that are destroying the world want to live forever because they don't want to deal with the fact that, um, the day ends every single day and it has to end. That's okay. And it's actually the end of the day that makes the day itself gives the day its context for its beauty. And, um, so easier said than done to be okay with dying. But I, mean, <laughs> I don't blame them for being afraid of dying, but like, come on, like let's get, let's have a little bit of acceptance of that. We will all die. Do you see with these, with what we're saying? Cause I feel like there is a major disconnect with death in our culture. And I, had a lot of it as a kid so i think i have a different perspective about death where i'm like yeah and i think about my death pretty where i don't think do a lot of people fucking go like on a daily basis like ponder death i don't think so i had an amazing book group the other night which is part of how my fiance and i met was this book group at um skylight that i was organizing for a long time which was like a current events reading group that would do small political actions and read timely books but the book group has like morphed over the years and now it's like um sort of like two generations people that are like from like 35 to 45 and then people that are 65 to 80 and one of the older members asked if we could read a book about dying and about end of end of life care and I was so impressed because I'm so rarely around older people that want to talk about dying and not, not 
like we need to talk about you dying, but let's just begin the conversation or whatever it is. Um, because it could be real. I mean, yeah, I'm not, I, I want to blame it all on like, you know, I'm white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. There's some, there's certainly something really malicious about every, so many aspects of that background. And I, I think my people have done a lot of denying that, that life and endless life has consequences um, and endless harvests and endless, uh, yeah, like taking does not have a, a death on the other side of it. Um, you want to, you want to look away from that. And if you look away, it doesn't exist. And I feel like we've been doing that for such a long time, but I even think of it on a minor scale of freedom of speech. It's like, yeah, you have freedom of speech, but there's a context and a consequence in every action. And so, yeah, I think it, it's, it is, I, but granted it's really hard to talk about death. It's hard to start from where we're at right now, which is not having many models to talk about it. Uh, but I certainly think about it a lot. I worked at a cemetery in Santa Monica doing the gardening there. And I was maintaining like a native plant area in the cemetery where you couldn't treat any of the bodies there buried with formaldehyde and you couldn't spray pesticides or weed killer or Roundup. And, but for the rest of the cemetery, that's what you fucking do. Like, <laughs> and it was interesting because the stuff that grows really well in a cemetery where you bury human bodies is native grasses because they take the toxins out of the soil and release them slowly into the environment rather than hold it into the ground forever, which is what we do with the rest of our cemeteries. And so they thrive there because they live on some of the nutrients that those toxins can, can give out. So it's really interesting to think about like a body decomposing underground and feeding the grass um, instead of like a body being preserved forever underground or whatever it is. Which is yeah. just a fucking crazy concept. Like why? Like what are we, are you going to dig it up and be like, he looks good. Doesn't he look good? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Conversations with DeWire. Wire. Please remember that there is a part two to this conversation. It lives on my Patreon. You could go to themattdwire.com and become a Patreon subscriber for five bucks a month and buy some merch and rate my show on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Music.